Well, this morning we're starting our study through the book of Revelation. And uh, it's going it's to be an interesting ride. It's going to be an, an interesting trip together as we go through it. Um, Revelation is fascinating, mainly because of its prophetic content. It's the only New Testament prophetic book. Um, and it, it's not just uh, kind of the intermediate prophecies you find in the Old Testament that had a fulfillment at some point within human history and then have this ongoing impact as years go by. Revelation really is the, the, the prophetic words that deal with the end of human history, at least the end of this world as we know it. Uh, Revelation is challenging because of that content. So easy in the book of Revelation to, uh, to get tripped up. And I think that Revelation is unique in that it spawned more uh, bad fiction and Hollywood movies and cultic movements than any other book of the Bible. And that's true because of the nature of the prophecies. Um, prophecy, by definition, has not yet been fulfilled. And when it's, something's not fulfilled and it's put in the kind of poetic form that Revelation is, well, it's very easy for a screenwriter to just lift pieces out that are interesting to him. And it's been very interesting or very easy for, for cult leaders. The Jehovah's Witnesses are known for this, but other groups do it too. To simply take things that have not yet been fulfilled and interpret them however they want to interpret them. To make them say whatever they want to make them say. Well, how do we make sure that we don't misuse it as we go through? Uh, there's two suggestions. One is that you get John MacArthur to be your pastor. That not being likely to happen, um, we're going to approach Revelation like we approach every other book of the Bible. Sound doctrine comes from sound methodologies. We're going to look at the uh, grammatical, historical language of the book. That means we're going to focus on the historical meaning of the languages and uh, language and the phrases and the the pictures that are are shaped there. We're going to keep the the words of this scripture in context. We're not just going to lift it out and start guessing at what things might be. Uh, we're going to compare the Bible to the Bible. There are more than 350 quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. That means a, a quotation being something that's usually set aside. It's got quotes around it. Uh, an allusion being a very, very clear uh, comparison to something that takes place in the Old Testament. The, uh, the, the first allusion that we have is actually in verse 1. He made it known by sending his angel to the to, uh, to uh, his servant John, there's a reflection there of Daniel and Gabriel coming to Daniel with a message from God and the other times that that happens. We're going to take it verse by verse. We're going to stay within the flow of, of Scripture. Revelation is sometimes frightening because of the judgments that it describes. I was saved in 1978, Linda in 1979, and that was kind of the high water mark of fascination with end times. Uh, it tapered off, I think, over the next decade, and and guys from the Abbey are here. I don't think that there's been very much new 
on end times in a number of years. But boy, it was hot and heavy there for a while. And it all focused on the dark side. It all focused on the, the, the painful side for the same reasons that we like horror movies and thrillers. Um, we, we like to be scared a little bit. And what we forget, what so many people have forgotten, is, is two things. One is the most sensible response an unbeliever could have to this book is to be terrified. Because it describes their future. It describes the, certainly the, the final judgment and all of the wicked, if their names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, being cast into the lake of fire. And for those that are alive during the time, it's, it's going to be a brutal period. But for us, for believers, this book is meant to be comforting. That's the reason that we have it. It's meant to comfort us. It's meant to reassure us. It's meant to strengthen our faith. It is meant to give us a, a solid standing on what God is going to do. We love to know what does the future hold? What's going to happen? Well, God tells us what's going to happen. We don't need to wonder about it. We don't need to be afraid of it happening. And, and by the way, let me point out that the church has been praying for this to take place for 2,000 years. The church has been praying for the events of Revelation to take place for 2,000 years. I bet you've prayed it. Anytime you've prayed the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, you're saying, Lord, all of that in the book of Revelation, bring it. Make it happen. Fulfill it as you said. So we've actually wanted this. Let's take a look at it. The first three verses form a preface. By the way, the, the, as I've looked at the first eight verses, there's a, a prologue or a preface to it, then there's a greeting and a, a doxology, and, and then a, a signature. God signs it in verse 8. As we get there, I think that you'll see that. I kind of see these first eight verses as being like the cover page for a, a serious document. So looking at the first three verses, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's of him because it is from him and because it is about him. In terms of being from him, he received it from the Father. Revelation is an extraordinarily triune book. The Father is significantly present. The Son is significantly present. And the work of the Spirit is throughout. God gave Jesus the revelation that he then was to show his servants so that they would know the things that are to come. Literally slaves, we are those slaves. As believers in Christ, we are those slaves. He gives us to us so that we may know the things that must soon take place. Now that word soon has led to several wrong ways of interpreting revelation. For instance, there's a, a methodology that says revelation is, uh, is what actually was taking place while John was imprisoned. John was just describing what was going on around him. And he put it in this poetic form so that he wouldn't get in trouble with the government. 
like, like any apostle of Jesus Christ, gave a rip about what the government thought. John's in banishment. He's in exile on Patmos, the prison island of the Roman Empire, because he didn't care what they thought. He's not going to write that way now. The reason that they do that is because they take soon as we take soon. Soon, meaning if, if Demetrius had told me, you know, once you get going, I'm going to have to leave soon, I would assume that that means before the sermon is done, before we, we finish for this morning. If Demetrius came back and said, well, I meant five years, I would say, well, brother, let's look up the word soon. The, see, the difference is, is that for you and I, 99% and fast more than that, 999% out of 1,000%, we use the word soon based on a clock or a calendar. Prophetic literature, though, doesn't use a clock. It doesn't use a calendar. It operates on the basis of events. If the events of the end times were laid out on a calendar, it wouldn't say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It would say Jesus appears to John. John sends letters to the seven churches. We see the events taking place in heaven. We see the judgments of God beginning to fall. Soon means that the next thing on God's calendar is the end times. The only thing Revelation doesn't clearly describe, and there are people who think that it hints at it, is the rapture of the church. Everything else is ready to go. It is soon. As soon as God the Father says, go, we go. Jesus received this from God the Father so that he could show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. We know as we read through Revelation that angels are all over the place. And there is, there is an angel in particular, we're not given a name or any description, but an angel in particular who kind of escorts John through these visions. There are 60 or so visions, 60 or so separate events that John sees, although he doesn't break them apart in that sense. Why give this? Why give this? And this does have to do with what John saw and what was going on in John's world. John had been an apostle of the Lord Jesus since Jesus' ministry in, in the, the late 20s of the first century. John had seen two major persecutions take place, the first under Nero, in the 60s, Nero was then assassinated by his own guards <coughs> and replaced. And then under the emperor Domitian in the 90s, persecution arose again. Domitian went after this uh, cultic group. Christians were considered atheists because they denied the deity of the emperor. He went after this group that refused to honor the emperor and worship the emperor. The people of God were suffering intensely. As we see those seven churches unfold in the, the next few weeks, you're going to see that some of them are in absolutely desperate straits. Some of them are already dead. And some of them are then on the spectrum between. And, and the, the vast majority of that is because of the suffering that's taking place. They're dealing with it on a daily basis. And the Lord wants his people to stand in faith. He wants them to stand firm. So one of the, the common threads 
through those letters to the seven churches is Jesus says to the end, to the one who conquers, to the one who remains firm in faith, to the one who stands firm with the truth once for all delivered to the saints, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, who hangs with that, who keeps his faith in the Lord. There is an end to this, and there is victory at the end of this. You need to endure. Well, the church has endured suffering for for 2,000 years. Now, just as in these seven letters, not all seven churches are in absolutely desperate straits. Not every congregation on the face of the earth for 2,000 years has suffered at the same time. The church in America has had it pretty good for quite a long time. But there are churches on other continents that are suffering horribly. What's interesting is that in some of the very places where the church is suffering most now, a thousand years ago, 1,500 years ago, the church was flourishing. Our time is coming as, as America, if the Lord tarries, if the Lord allows things to continue on as they are. There's nothing to fear from that. All they can do is kill us. They can't take from us Jesus Christ. They can't take the gospel from us. Who can separate us from the love of God? No one. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's Jesus who died. Much more was raised for us. And so in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of the pain and the fear, the Lord wants his people to be reassured. Hang on. Don't give up. Don't give in. We have a blessing in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's me this morning. Well, that's what I'm doing. And blessed are those who hear. That's you. But notice, blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. The nearness of time and the soonness of time. We've we've got to stand in the faith and we've got to encourage one another in the faith. Why, Why is there a blessing specifically for this? Because of the honor of speaking these words. This is the last thing Jesus gave his church. This is the, the, not only the last thing that Jesus gave his church, this is the last thing, this isn't going to sound right, this is the last thing the church needs. It's not the last thing the church needs. It is the thing the church needs. The reminder that he wins. By the way, I read to the end of the book, he wins. Huh? Spoiler alert. alert. Yeah. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it. Why? Because for the body of Christ, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, He shows us how He takes us through the worst time the earth will ever face. He shows us how we're protected. He shows us how we're lifted up. He shows us the reason it's for the sake of love. He shows us how He did it. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. And He shows us the absolute guarantee because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and He won't fail. So there's a blessing to read these things. There's a blessing to hear these things and to heed these things. Moving on into John's greeting, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. He identifies himself. Then he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. 
So it's a it's a prophetic book, but it's also a letter. And so John addresses it as a letter. And there's a greeting like uh, uh, most of the New Testament epistles have. They have a greeting that usually includes grace and peace. Seventeen of the New Testament epistles start that way. So John treats this as a letter. Uh, and I would even say this book is eight letters. The book as a whole is a letter, but then there's seven individual letters to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There will be a test on that at the end. I want you to notice that this grace and peace comes from the triune God. It comes from first Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's just an expanded way of saying I am. It's an expanded way of saying Yahweh. It deals with the eternal nature of God and the eternal power of God. It's the name God gave when he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. And, And by the way, remember, when God revealed himself to Moses as I am, it was because he was planning on delivering his people out. God introduces himself here as the one who what is and who was and who is to come because his plan is to deliver us out. He's already delivered us from sin and the power of sin and the penalty of sin that he's going to deliver us out of the judgment to come. It's also a grace and peace from the Holy Spirit where it says the seven spirits who are before his throne. Of course, that's very clear to you, so I don't need to touch on that at all, right? Um, remember, Revelation has 350 quotes and allusions from the Old Testament. Beyond that, it is filled with subtle references and things that scholars say, yeah, it could be, but probably not. John is a man whose mind and heart is saturated with the Scripture. And so it just comes out of him. If you cut John, he bleeds the Word of God. That's what we're seeing. So what he does is he takes us back to to the prophet Zechariah, where Zechariah receives a message from God about what the Lord is going to do to uh, restore, to restore Israel. And he says in, in Zechariah, wow, I just turned to it. He says to Zechariah, Hear now, O Joshua the priest. Zechariah rather writes, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, the branch being the Messiah. And then he says, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, and and scholars are, are unanimous basically in saying this is the chief cornerstone. It's another reference to Jesus. On the stone I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And the, the angel who talked with me it came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold lampstands all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps. 
a lampstand made of gold, rather, and seven lamps on it with the seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and one on the left. And I said to the angel who talked, talked with me, what are these, Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of Lord of the Lord by Zerubbabel or to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then he says in verse 10, For whatever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven the lamps are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Eyes because they see. Lamps because of the light. John is taking us back to that idea that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Seven being the number of completion, the number of wholeness, the number of perfection. And telling us He's the Holy Spirit who sees. He's the Holy Spirit who knows. In Revelation 3.1, John describes Jesus to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he's explained what the seven stars are in chapter 1. And in chapter, five, or chapter 4, verse 5, as he describes the... The, uh, the scene at the throne of God, it's a, just a, a, a number, a pile of supernatural references. He says in verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning and, rumbles and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven torch, burning torches of God, which are the seven spirits of God. One Holy Spirit described as the seven spirits of God because of the wholeness and the completion and the perfection and the torches because of the lamps and the seeing and the knowledge. Grace and peace come from God the Father. Grace and peace come from the Holy Spirit. And grace and peace come from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting here, it's one of the few times you'll find Father, Spirit, Son rather than Father, Son, Spirit in Scripture. And he does that because of the... the preeminence Jesus has throughout this book. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. These three titles matter. He's the faithful witness. At at the very least, we can say, by being the faithful witness, we know that he gave us, he told us everything the Father wanted him to say. He says in John 17 when he prays, I I gave all of my men everything you gave me to give them. I told them everything and they've believed. As uh, after he ascended, he continued to minister through his apostles and eventually he gave the scriptures through them. And he gave us the wholeness of what God wants us to know. He's faithful. He's delivered the whole message, the whole truth. He didn't hold anything back. He didn't add anything to it that the Father didn't give him. He's been faithful. But there's another subtle element to this. And that element is he's speaking to people who are his witnesses. Every Christian is a witness of Christ. 
Every Christian is someone who is to live as a witness and speak as a witness, to pray as a witness, to honor the Lord as a witness to who He is. And I am so bad at that. I'm just bad at that. I'm just not a great witness. I'm supposed to be a good witness. I'm a pastor. But I'm I'm not a great witness. You only see the outside. It's nastier on the inside. Hard as that is to imagine, it's nastier on the inside. I'm not a great witness. Too often I do the right thing accidentally and the wrong thing deliberately. I'm not a great witness. Maybe you're not a great witness either. And maybe as you think about the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and everything to come at at this end time, you start thinking, but I don't match up. Well, none of us match up. None of us match up. But we know one who is a perfect witness. And with our sin, with our weakness, with our failures... We appeal to him, and just as he's given his righteousness to us, with that came credit for his witness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God took all of your sin. He took it from your account, and 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 he charged it to Jesus' account. God took all of Jesus' righteousness, and he, he credited it to your account. If you don't get anything else this morning, get that. Far too many Christians live under a burden of guilt and shame and the belief that they're second class. They're some lower category because they can't meet the, the standard. Jesus met the standard, including the standard for being a faithful witness. He is the, the, the forerunner for us of what a faithful witness looks like. As he bore the wrath of the Father, as he lived in obedience, as he did everything that's there, everything that we see in the Gospels, he is our faithful witness. He's also the firstborn from the dead. He's the first human being to be raised from the dead in a glorified state. And he's not the first human being to be raised from the dead. I think of the widow in 1 Kings or of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus wasn't the first one to rise, but Jesus was the first one to stay rose. They all died. He raised the, Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead. She fed him for three years. The son died and he prayed and and he raised the son from the lead or from the dead. The power of God did, not Elijah. But you know that boy went on to grow up and die. Lazarus had to die all over again. And maybe it was comforting to Lazarus to say, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. But but maybe Lazarus just thought, oh no. It's like when you go to the dentist because you got a toothache and they pulled the wrong tooth. And you go, no, it's not a gift to do this again. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He was raised from the dead, immortal and glorified. What I want you to focus on is the word firstborn. 
All he had to say was, Jesus is the faithful witness who was dead and is alive. That would that'd be accurate too. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. All of those who believe in him will follow him in exactly that. In exactly that. Because he was raised, we shall be raised. I got the wrong reference, reference on my slides. In, in 1 John 2, or 1 John 3 rather, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. What does it mean to be immortal? I don't know. I I can't imagine not waking up tired. I can't imagine not needing sleep. I can't imagine having a pain-free life. Physical pain, I mean. Just pain-free life. I can't imagine having a a pain-free life emotionally. I can't imagine having... A, uh, a clear mental state that never gets confused, that never gets foggy, that never misses a beat or skips a groove. What does it mean to be glorified, to be made holy, to be made light? I've got no idea. We don't know what will be. We don't know. We can't begin to imagine it. But we know that when Jesus appears, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. When he returns for us, when he raptures us out of here, which is my vote, I'd rather be raptured than die. When he raptures us out of here, or when we die, and then are raised from the dead, this is physical resurrection. When we are raised from the dead, we will be glorified as he is glorified. We won't be godlike. Jesus has two natures. He's fully God and He's fully man. We don't get the God part. That that belongs to God and God alone. But everything that Jesus, the glorified risen man is, we will be. He's the firstborn from the dead. For, For a bunch of people receiving this letter who are being told, if you don't renounce Christ, you'll die. This matters. For husbands who are watching their wives and children threatened with spears and swords, denounce Christ or we kill your family in front of you. This matters. It's important to know that there is life to come. That's why Stephen, when he was being stoned, was given this gift, I think, of of saying, I see the Lord. I can see him. So that we would know, perhaps even as a promise for every believer, I can't prove this. But maybe with every saint who dies, there's a moment as death approaches where we understand what Stephen saw. Where light comes instead of darkness. And Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. He didn't come as a king, he came as a servant. He came as a lamb. But when he returns again, 
He returns as a king, and he is a king now. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He exercises his right to and rule and to power, or right, right and power to rule for the glory of God. He exercises the right to bring about the perfect salvation of, of his own, the perfect judgment for the wicked. There's no authority on earth that exceeds his. There's no power on earth that can exceed his. He'll execute justice and judgment against the kingdoms of the earth. He won't ask for permission, and nobody will resist him. When he speaks, he will speak with authority. So we have have grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the faithful witness, and he did this for us. We have grace and peace because he's the firstborn of the dead. And while we don't know what we will be like, we'll be like him, and I'm okay with that. We have grace and peace because he is the ruler of kings on earth, and there's not a thing one of those kings can do that doesn't first come through his hands. So that it's, it's changed from a dagger to a scalpel. You know the difference between a dagger and a scalpel. A dagger is meant to destroy. A scalpel is meant to save. And he takes the the very things that the world and Satan means for our destruction, and by his power and by his authority, he changes the very nature of that suffering. It's like spiritual kung fu, where they use the momentum of the enemy against, against him. I don't mean the show kung fu. Well, at this point, John bursts into a doxology to the Lord Jesus Christ, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. All praise and glory and dominion to the Lord. He loves us. He's freed us from sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin. He's broken its back. And he's made us a kingdom. The kingdom of God is not based on power and earthly territory. The kingdom of God is is based on love and heavenly relationship. He's made us priests to his God and Father. So that I don't need a priest. You don't need a priest. I'm the closest thing to, to a priest you'll find on earth. So are you. So are you. Women and men alike and children who know him. Because ultimately our priest is in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ who intercedes for us nonstop. We don't need anybody else to mediate between us and God. They can't help. They can only hurt. John bursts out in this statement of praise and acknowledges Jesus as the one who loves us and has freed us. And notice in verse 6, it's a simple thing, but it's important. He doesn't say that he makes us a kingdom. He said that he made us a kingdom. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been made part of that kingdom. You're there now. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's an awesome thing that's true. Verse 7 becomes very interesting, and and I think for John... Very personal. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. John had spent three years with Jesus in Israel, mainly in Galilee, some in Judah. He'd seen Jesus heal, 
do all kinds of miracles. He'd, he'd heard Jesus speak. He'd heard it all. He'd listened to it all. He saw those who just walked by uninterested. He saw those who came for the miracle and left when the teaching started. He saw those that pursued him just to get the next experience, but who refused to believe him, who refused to obey him. Jesus saw the, the enemies, the Pharisees, the leader of, of Israel, the chief priests, those who have, should have been welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem were the ones to call for his death. And all through that time, John and the others are seeing Jesus teach these things and seeing him perform these miracles. And, and they've, they've got to be thinking, why don't people see this? He raised a dead guy. How could you not leave everything and follow this man? John sees Jesus arrested. He goes with Peter to the house of Caiaphas. He, if he doesn't see Jesus physically beaten, he sees the aftermath of the beating Jesus took. He's wondering what's, what's going on. And Jesus is dragged to Calvary and he's crucified, naked. And John is seeing that and then the cruelty of those who came and taunted Jesus as he hung dying. And John's, why are you submitting to this? You don't have to. And then Jesus dies. And not John, not Peter, not Andrew, not James, not any of the disciples said, okay, three days now, three days, set your clock, three days. They said, it's over, he's dead now. And then Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is raised from the dead. Peter and John go running, and John believes. He's the first one to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they wait. Now, right? Now you're going to reveal yourself. Forty days goes by. Jesus makes a number of appearances. Every appearance he makes is to believers, none to unbelievers. None of them are recorded as, or as being in, in Judea or Jerusalem. They're all up in Galilee. And then the day comes that Jesus is going to ascend. They don't know it, I think, at the time. He takes them out. He gives them some final instructions. They say, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time you're going to set yourself up as the king? Now's the time you're going to deal with your enemies, right? You're going to vindicate your name. They're all going to see who you are now, right? And Jesus says, it's none of your business. It's not your concern. It's not, up to, it's not for you to know what times and seasons the Father has set by His own authority. You do what I've told you to do. And Jesus rises through the clouds. And what do they do? They wait. Well, we'll just wait. He'll be back. And, and Jesus has to send two angels down to say, you know, you're going to wait a long time. Go to Jerusalem like He told you and wait. The Holy Spirit comes, the church is born, that first day is an awesome day, 3,000 people get saved, but very, very quickly there's, dis, uh, there, there's disunity and there's unrest and then persecution arises and they're, they're driven out and then the great persecution under Nero, when, when by that point all of the apostles are dead, except John. It was so close, Lord, it was so close. And now, finally, for the cause of the gospel, for preaching the gospel, he says in verse 9, John has been exiled to a prison island called Patmos. 
about 25 miles off the coast of western Turkey. Where's the glory? Lord, where's the vindication? I'm glad you did all of that, but what, what was it for then? And Jesus sends this, this revelation to John. And John sees the vindication of God. Chapters 4 and 5, he has a vision of heaven and the glory of heaven and the glory that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, receives in heaven. He hears that Jesus alone is worthy to take the scroll of judgment and to bring judgment upon the wicked. He sees that judgment begin to unfold. He, he sees it pause as the 144,000 are sealed, and then he sees it resume, and he sees it pause again as, as the whole history of God's salvation plan is revealed in chapter 12 and then he sees it resume again and then he sees Babylon the Great which which is not Rome, it's not Babylon, it's not Nineveh. Babylon the Great is is a representation of, of every sick idolatrous system out there. It's the power underlining the whole thing. And he sees it under the judgment of God and then he sees it fall. And then he sees Jesus return in chapter 19, which is interesting because Jesus comes with the armies of the host of heaven, and that's usually understood as being the church, which means John sees himself riding with the Lord coming back, and he sees Jesus establish his kingdom on earth, Satan bound, the dead raised. Satan is released after a thousand years. He leads one last rebellion. He sees Jesus squash that rebellion. And then he sees a new heavens and a new earth, and he sees the the bride, the city Jerusalem, and, and he sees the city itself, and he sees the river of living water and the tree of life. He sees all of it. And he says he's vindicated. Jesus is vindicated. He is who he says he is. I joke about reading to the end of the book. John got to see it. He was there. And then he writes it down. And he says to us, behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's us. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him because of the judgment that is coming upon them. Jesus Christ reveals himself as vindicated. We don't need to feel sorry for him. We don't need to be grumpy for him. We have this truth and this comfort. And then we have God's signature in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And I approve of this message. It's that sealed with the, the name of God. The Father and Son and Spirit want us to know what's coming. Not so we can cringe in terror, but so that we can trust Him and we can continue to worship Him. We can continue to serve Him. We can continue to be bold and faithful to that simple message that we've been given. That man is born dead in sin. That Jesus Christ came and bore the 
the sins of his people, that he was raised from the dead, that salvation comes through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. That his name will be high and lifted up and vindicated. And until that day comes, we get to say with John, behold, he comes with the clouds. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. Just as in 1 Thessalonians, Paul uh, gives a picture of what's to come for the church and then says, comfort one another with these words. Lord, help us to comfort ourselves with these words that you've given us. Jesus wins and he will not lose us. Jesus wins and he asks only that we be faithful, that we endure And Lord, we believe because you've given us faith, we endure because you have grabbed us by the scruff of the neck and won't let us go. I ask that you enable us to remain humble before you. Help us to remain amazed that we get to be a part of this. And Lord, as we unfold the book of Revelation together, open our eyes to the promises that are there. Open our eyes to your holiness as you bring judgment against the ungodly. Open our eyes to your mercy as you you create spaces between each one of those judgments for those who will to repent. And Lord, grant us peace and security and joy in knowing that in a very short time, soon, this is over and we are with you for all eternity. And Lord, we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.